When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From MCIE. Australia is known for many wonderful things. The Sydney Opera House, the Great Barrier Reef, Shrimp on the Barbie. But did you know about their movement toward inclusive education practices? Stick around to find out more. My name is Tim Viegas from the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, and you are listening to Think Inclusive, a show where with every conversation, we try to build bridges between families, educators, and disability justice advocates to create a shared understanding of inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. You can learn more about who we are and what we do at mcie.org. Dr. Kate DeBruin is a professor of inclusive education at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. She has taught in secondary school and higher education for 20 years. In her academic work, she has developed inclusive education courses for the Master of Teaching and Master of Education programs at Monash University. Dr. DeBruin's research focuses on inclusive education policies and practices. She examines evidence-based, system-level, and school-level practices that promote quality and equity for all students, with a focus on students with disabilities. Dr. DeBruin regularly provides professional development to school teachers, and rights for both academics and the general public. She is a member of the Academic Advisory Board for All Means All, the Australian Alliance for Inclusive Education. Here is what we cover in today's episode. The significant differences between the Australian and American education systems. The long history of Australia segregating students with disabilities and the growing movement in Australia to move towards inclusive education. Before we dive into today's amazing interview, I've got something important to share. Have you ever felt like you're losing touch with the people in your life, but you don't want to be glued to social media all the time just to get updates? Well, fret no more because I've got the perfect solution for you. Together Letters. It's a fantastic tool that can bring you closer to your loved ones. How does it work? It's simple. Together Letters 
is a group email newsletter that gathers updates from all its members and combines them into a single easy-to-read newsletter for everyone. No fancy apps, no complicated platforms needed, just good old email. We even use Together Letters to keep our Think Inclusive patrons connected with each other. Plus, here's the best part. Groups of 10 or less can use it for free. So why wait? Head over to togetherletters.com and sign up right now. Reconnect with your favorite people because Together Letters has got your back. And now, my interview with Kate DeBruin. Thanks for being here, Kate. I really appreciate it. It's okay if I call you Kate, right? It's Maurice. Okay. You, so we were talking right before we hit the record button and you said that you don't have school districts. So could you just unpack that for me first before we dive into the questions? Because in the United States, oh gosh, I used to know this. I think there's like 15,000 school districts, I want to say. That might be low, but I think that's it. I think it's around 15 to 16,000 across all 50 states. I don't know if that includes territories because I don't, that, it's not, I'm not an expert in that. But so how does that work then if you don't have school districts? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. So we are a federated education system, a bit like the United States. We have states and territories and they run their education systems. They have sort of constitutional authority to run education. Um, and the federal government here provides some fun, most of the funding for that. And then we have several school systems. So we have state education system, but we also have a, an independent school system. So they're the private schools. And then we have another set of private schools that are run by the Catholic education authorities. So we've kind of got three systems and then multiple states and territories. And so if we just focus on the public school system, so the state education systems, they are generally divided into regions. So the kind of quadrants of the state, if you like. And within that, there are regions that have offices that for administrative purposes from the Department of Education perspective, but they don't seem to work in the same way that districts do in the United States. So I visited the United States a few years ago and I talked, you know, I went to some, went to different school districts and talked to people from the education office and, and so on. And I, I got a, a sense of how completely different the system is there. So we have a very decentralized system here, which means that the authority to make decisions and do a lot of stuff has been devolved to the level of the school. So for example, professional learning budgets, you know, schools and individual teachers can do whatever they like, whatever they deem is relevant to their class and their interests. Whereas what I saw, for example, in Kansas, which I visited, was that at the district level, there's a lot of decisions and responsibility that rests there. So in one district that I went to, they said, look, we have a lot of kids in state care. We have a, a large number of kids who've been affected by trauma. So they determined that that was a priority for, for professional learning. And so that's what the majority of teachers were able to access there. And the quality checking was done at the level of the district and, and so on. So that doesn't happen here. It rests all the way down at the level of the school and the teacher. Well, that must be really difficult then, especially on our topic inclusive education, because how do you have any sort of accountability on who gets what resources and, you know, and then, you know, the other question, I don't even think I put it in here, is the differences between the special education system of a district versus a school in Australia. 
you know, because we have the Office of Special Education Programs, OSEP, which is is kind of it. I mean, there there's the law, there's the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, but then you also have federal funds that are distributed to the states. So how does that work in Australia? That's a really good question. So we have something sort of similar. We have um, your laws are much better than ours. So uh, we have non-discrimination law that includes education. It's got section 22 on education, but it also covers housing and transport and employment and you know all those all the aspects of non-discrimination across the whole of society. And it's so there are a set of standards that have been written that go alongside that. They're standards for compliance. So if schools are meeting their obligations under our Federal Disability Discrimination Act, then here are the standards you should be meeting to do so. Standards for enrolment, standards for participation, and so on. But I look with great envy at the systems of accountability that you have in your country and for transparent reporting. We don't have those. And that's a matter of some frustration to me. It's not a particularly sexy topic when I keep banging on about transparency and accountability and um, it's hard to get people excited about it. But in reality, that's where the magic could be happening. So we don't have transparency at all. The only We have a, a very long-standing and well-established system of quite stratified, segregated options for students. And when I say options, many of them, for many of those students, it wasn't very optional at all. So we have separate special schools and then they, they're counted, they're countable. So we know in each state how many kids attend those. But then within many schools, we have what's called a separate unit, which is like a mini special school over in the corner. And it's often got a separate fence and playground. And, you know, for all, it might share an address, but nothing else. And then in some schools, children are sort of integrated on a part-time basis if they are in those units. So they might share the playground and the library and maybe the art room, or, you know, so it's very, it's quite very variable. And then there are schools with special education classrooms. Now, the kids who attend segregated units and classrooms are counted as being in mainstream because they are on the grounds of a mainstream school. So we actually have no idea how many kids are segregated in this country. And there was a big review of our Disability Discrimination Act done by what we have here called the Productivity Commission, um, and they found that that was very problematic. That was a long time ago. It was when the law was only about 10 years old, but it's never really been addressed. So back to your question, how does that, if we don't have districts, how on earth does this work in terms of transparency and accountability? It kind of doesn't. Um, <laughs> yeah. It there are it. federal... There are federal initiatives designed to introduce accountability. They're only about five years old, um, but they're really designed for the purposes of financial accountability and not really much more. Wasn't there some sort of national commission on disability? I'm not, I should have had it up before you came up because I wanted to talk to you about it. Let me see if I can find it. I can jog your memory. It's ongoing. It's the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability. Yes. And so how long has that been going on? That's a good question. It's been going for a couple of years now. I'm afraid I don't have the, Let's see. the span of years to hand. I actually was summoned as a witness to that the year before last. Let's see. Okay. So I wrote about it in 2019. So, you know, that's been three years. Or, well, actually, it was. it's November of 2019. So, yeah, almost exactly three years ago. And, but it's... So Disability Royal Commission on Inclusive Education in Queensland? So that was one of the hearings. There have been 
um, I think three hearings on education. Again, it's got it's very broad ranging in scope. They're looking at employment, housing, COVID nineteen responses, access to healthcare, all the you know the full spectrum. We have a a really fabulous senator in this country who lives with disability and has been a really strong advocate for for this Royal Commission and it wouldn't have happened without his advocacy and insistence and you know that but nonetheless it's still going on quite slowly and those of us who work in inclusive education are fervently hoping that an outcome from this Royal Commission will be that there's a planned closure of separate special schools but it's got another good year to run so watch this space right right and then even if there is some even if there is an outcome there's the amount of time that it would take to actually close the schools. And then what do we do with the students, the learners? The learners would have to go back to their neighborhood schools. Do, do, do you, I know since you don't have school districts, but are the schools neighborhood schools? They are. So, and look, again, we're state-based and I live in Victoria, which is the, one of the you know southernmost states in Australia on the eastern seaboard. And schools generally serve a local community and they have what's called a catchment zone. So you are mostly required, if you're going to go to a public school, you need to generally be within that the zone of that school. And in my state, it used to be that you could bypass your zone and, and request access to a school outside your zone. And what that led to was a lot of distortion of student numbers. You know, a school would start up some program and do some, you know, incredible PR around it. And, and it might have, it, and it often had it, it might cream a certain number of students out of the local community and hmm. or it might distort it in other ways. There's one fabulous school not far from here that's made an excellent name in reading and teaching every kid to read, committing to teaching every kid to read. So what happened was a lot of the kids who weren't, you know, kids with you know, specific learning disabilities, for example, were suddenly seeking to enrol in that school because they weren't getting access to high-quality reading instruction in their local school. So we get things that can distort the enrolment patterns. So it's now being um, made much harder to do that. You need to go to your local school and then you need to press your local school to lift their game if there's something in particular that you think they need to be doing. Mm. Okay. I think there's this, uh, I know we have, we're not answering, we're not, I'm not asking you any of these questions yet, but <laughs> I think there's an impression uh, about Australia, and apologies that it's a generalization, that, that you're doing something more right in certain schools than we are in regards to inclusive education as it being as it as it's being a as there's a focus on it because in the United States we do have the law and the law is pretty clear about learners at least being included to the to the maximum extent now there's a lot of interpretations about that about what that actually means and a lot of misinterpretation about it, but the words inclusive education and it meaning all learners, especially those with extensive support needs, that seems to get missed sometimes here when we're talking about inclusion. Oh, not for those kids, not for the kids with significant, you know, intellectual disabilities, not for kids with, with extensive medical support needs. You, you don't mean those kids. Inclusion, sure. Co-teaching, great. Learning, learning disabilities. I have no problem with that. But when we're talking about more extensive support needs, then that's where people there's a disconnect. But there's a there's an impression that because because you have the UN Charter and 
because it's more on top of mind when at least from from my perspective that you have something more going on is that a incorrect <laughs> is that an incorrect assumption i'm really sorry but it is so but but that said there are some really standout schools the thing about having this level of decentralization and school autonomy is that you have some amazing schools doing amazing things so the first hearing of the disability royal commission heard from three different you know school leaders talking about how they've created fully inclusive environments and what they did. And that just goes to show that it's not impossible, <laughs> but it's not widespread. It's not widespread. And in fact, I would argue that the the ongoing presence of the system of segregated schools actually acts to hinder that kind of innovation and reform because they offer operate as a release valve. And in particular for the kind of kids that you've mentioned, surely you don't mean those kids. We have no idea how to do that. And so there's so, the, the, you know, at enrollment, parents can be told, we have no idea how to do this. Your kid would be way better off going to this other place. And sometimes that can be, so the law says they're not allowed to refuse an enrollment. So the thing about a, a non-discrimination law is it says you're entitled to enroll in your local school, but you have to press for your entitlement and you don't have very clear recourse for action if that isn't forthcoming. Um, so yes, you're right. Your laws are way better. They're much clearer. They may, as you said, not have really translated into the kind of outcomes that everybody wanted to see for certain groups of kids in particular. But here, I mean, I get as an academic who writes, you know, I write in sort of public places as well as in academic journals. And so I'll write something in a, you know, like, or I'll get interviewed for a newspaper article and suddenly I'll get a, you know, a number of parents contacting me saying, can you help? And one parent contacted me as an illustrative example, and the school where their child was enrolled without telling them had rung the local special school and requested that they contact the parent and handed over the parent's contact details and said, could you line up an interview with this kid? We think they'd be better in your school. So now, you know, that's not that widespread. And I try to remember when I deal with parents and with teachers that everybody comes from a well-intentioned place, that we do share in deep in our hearts a desire for kids to get a good education and, and and feel feel safe and welcome at school and you know all of those good things but the, the ongoing presence of separate schools acts to, as a signal that says there's somewhere else for these kids to be not everybody belongs at their local school so would you say that that is the the biggest issue or a major struggle for people who are pursuing inclusive education in Australia is it those special schools or is it something the else fact that they Look, I think that's a huge part of it, the fact that they continue to exist and send that signal that there's another place for them. And, you know, I, so I work in a Masters of Education program I teach for inclusive education and I teach teachers who are already doing this work and many of them work in these separate special schools. And they often come into my courses presuming that I'll see them as kind of like the opposition or the enemy and I don't because we're all involved in the same work of trying to make sure kids the most vulnerable kids in our system, let's be honest, get access to an education. But uh, the fact that they continue to exist and the, the expense of maintaining two separate systems means that the system runs inefficiently and it acts to funnel kids somewhere else. And it's painted here as choice for parents. You know, well, you can choose your local school or you can choose to go to your special school, but it is it's not really a choice. If you're a parent of a child, let's imagine you've got twins. You've got two four-year-olds and you're looking to enroll them in school next year. And one of them has, let's say, an intellectual disability. 
And so when your choice for one child, there is no choice. Your one child one goes to the local school, that's their school. Child number two, that's where it's painted as a choice. But if you're told, well, this other school has speech pathologists and occupational therapists and we have much smaller classes and there's a bus system, we can pick your child up. You know, it's actually not really the same. They're not a choice on an equal basis. And then if you go to the school to enrol them both, the local school, and that school says, we're not really set up for your child. We haven't done this before. We don't really, you know, we don't really have a model to work on. Our classes are big. We don't have any allied health to support your kid, but they've got all of that on tap up the street. It's not a choice. So a lot of it is about the kind of political narrative, and it would be a brave government that said to parents, we're going to take away your choice. (laughs) Or to the parents who've had, who've attempted to enroll their kid in their local school and had a really bad experience and maybe left, you know, a bit, a bit damaged, a bit brutalized by that experience. And to say we're taking away the place where your child feels safe, that's a very hard sell. So getting back to your question about the time it might take, if we did get someone to say, all right, we're going to be brave, let's do this and put a time on it, it will take time. It will take time. We need to we need to build the capacity of teachers in local schools to do this work and the and do a lot of work on the values and attitudes that go along with that. But I have a lot of people say to me, look, the system isn't ready. We need to wait until it's ready. And I said, well, look, we'll be waiting forever. Um, that day won't come on its own. You have to have a time frame in place to say, we're going to make sure we're ready by this date. Is there a organization in Australia that assists, well, I guess it would be schools because it wouldn't be state agencies necessarily because schools, the, the local schools make decisions. So is there an organization in Australia or in, in a particular province or state that assists schools with like a school transformation towards inclusive practices? Not in the kind of formal way that you've painted it. So there are a number of organisations that work in the field of disability and education. There's the Australian Coalition for Inclusive Education, known as All Means All. Um, There's Children and Youth with Disabilities, Children and Young People with Disability Australia. They have lots of good resources. They've just worked with the federal government to produce some really fabulous resources that are accessible for families, for example. But there isn't a formal push for school transformation the way there has been in the United States. So the, the, the kind of reforms that happened with IDEA in 2004 exerted some pressures on the system. It's a matter of great interest to me. They, uh, from my reading, correct me if I'm wrong, but from my mm-hmm. reading of the history and the research, it looked like a lot of that was driven by kind of LD initiative and the rise in the number of kids with learning disabilities and the numbers of those that exploded after the original reforms in the 70s. Now, Australia's got a really interesting and opposite experience. Those kids were never funded for additional support in our system. So they're called, they're, those kids were referred to as having learning difficulties here. So they were never funded. So those that's one group of kids that fell into that giant crack that opens up when you have a funding model driven by a disability label. Okay, so you've got a physical impairment. You can have some targeted funding and the school can put in ramps and, you know, widen the doorway or you have a hearing impairment, we can put a sound field system in for you. But those kids with, you know, what we've always referred to as things like dyslexia and dyscalculia, for example, were not. So the pressure on the system hasn't been exerted in the way that it was in the United States. So we don't have a big appetite for school transformation. 
And in fact, we have a really tired workforce of teachers who've just survived a pandemic. So there isn't a lot of appetite for school transformation. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So you recently wrote, an, I guess, an article, a piece in, it was LD Bulletin? Learning Difficulties Australia's Bulletin, yeah. Okay. And and so I wanted to ask you some questions about that. And I, that it, it reminded me when you were talking, because I think you addressed that in your article about how for those for those learners with learning difficulties, there there isn't the funding. But but you like that didn't stop you from helping them or doing something about it. So I'm wondering, could you tell me that story in sure. the, the best way that you get? Sure. So I was fairly new in teaching. I think I might have been in my second year. And we had a number of students who it sort of it, it all began with reading. Actually, it began with reading. We had a number of kids who couldn't read. So there's some backstory I wasn't able to capture in that that LDA bulletin piece. Um, we had a a new person take over what was called the learning support department, and she was fabulous. And she had done, I think, some reading. This was around the time the National Reading Panel in the United States had you know, it, it put out its report. We had another one happening here in Australia known as the Roe Report. And so she became interested in reading and she concluded that if the kids in the high school that I worked in, and we have no middle school here, so our, we have primary schools from prep to grade six and we have high schools from year seven to 12. And I worked in a high school. And she said, look, we have kids that can't read. It, it ends there for them. They can't access the textbooks. They can't, you know, it's all over. So she became interested in reading. And I had, in my first year, I'd been completely unprepared for the number of the, the the small but very present number of kids who couldn't read in my class, and I felt very underprepared to teach them and pretty angry about that actually. And so the school was located on the urban fringe of Melbourne, the city I live in, in an area with enormous disparity of wealth and poverty. So it's on the bay. There are very wealthy multi-million dollar mansions on the bay, and then a couple of kilometres inland. There's a low-income housing estate where the people are third-generation, unemployed, and very disadvantaged, very disadvantaged, live in really abject poverty. And all of those kids were at my school. So there were all sorts of forms of disadvantage present in this school, and that made it really a lovely place to work. It was a little bit like the world. Everybody was there. And, um, but there were these kids that couldn't read, and I could see that they were going to get trapped in the life of their families. They were going to become fourth-generation unemployed. And we had the power to change that. It's just that I had no idea how to do it. And I felt this huge sense of responsibility to make it, make that different 
for them. I loved these kids. They were, you know, they were these fabulous, bright, fabulous kids. And I could see that their futures were going to go off a cliff if I couldn't change. And I didn't know how. So I, you know, I made contact with this woman that had just taken over the learning support department and said, I have no idea how to help, but I want to help. Let's do something. (laughs) And so we started small. We started a homework club and we served fresh cut up fruit and anyone who wanted to come and get help with their homework could come. And so it sort of started with these small initiatives and we went and got some professional learning about reading and we started running a reading intervention program called Corrective Reading that was recommended as really the only one with any evidence to support its use for older students. So the following year, we had two little girls enroll in year seven with intellectual disability. And they were both put in my class because they shared a a teacher aide, a paraprofessional. And I was given this 300-page novel, well, two of them, that the kids were supposed to Not only could they not read, but, yeah, they couldn't even, they were reading at about a grade three level at that point. So there were just a thousand issues. But at the same time, I knew where schooling headed. I was also teaching year 12. I knew where it went. And so I thought, well, how do I get them within, within, within Kui at that point? So I sort of took this six year, I've got you in this school for six years. What do I need to do aside from teach you to read to get you there? And so I thought, well, how do I give you access to the content of the book so that you can at least think in about writing in structured ways? I can teach you about topic sentences and I can teach you about using evidence from a book. And so it was about giving them access to the book, only there was no ebook. They couldn't listen to the book. And so I kept thinking I'd found a solution and then I hadn't because it didn't exist. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I'll get an ebook and then it didn't exist. And then I thought, oh, well, I'll make an ebook. And then I was told, no, that breaches copyright. So I, you know, I was, I'm a pretty tenacious person. And I thought, you know, we're all sensible people. We all want a good outcome here. There's got to be a way through this. So I just kept making phone calls and thinking and, you know, and eventually I discovered that I could make an alternative format for a book if it didn't already exist, if there was no kind of commercial reason not to. Um, but then when I spoke to the copyright licensing agency, just to triple check everything that I wasn't going to make my school in breach of the law, they said no one else can access this unless they meet the definition of disability under the Disability Discrimination Act. And it was like, what now? So all those kids that I was talking about before, those kids with dyslexia who were in our reading program, or the kids, there'd been a huge wave of migration following the the wars in like Iraq and Bosnia and, and there were these kids and English wasn't their first language and they couldn't access those recordings. And so I was sort of frustrated by the, the, the limitations of the law and what I could do. But I just thought, well, I'm just going to focus on these two little girls for now in my class and then think about how I can expand that out. And so then I thought, well, how do I make, how do I make audio recordings of books fast? <laughs> And my colleague and I, we sort of threw a few ideas out. And then she just said, let's see if anyone wants to help. And we, we sent this email around the staff. This was a big school. There were about 2,000 kids in the school. And we were inundated with responses from teachers. And it was one of those seminal moments for me quite early on in my career. You don't have to do this on your own. In fact, you can't do this on your own. But these kids don't belong to us as teachers. They're not ours. They're everybody's. And if it's a whole school initiative and if everybody's on board with the, you know, how do we help all these kids to succeed, it makes an enormous difference. So it was, as I said, that we, they all responded, well, probably 70% of the staff said happy to help. And they each read a chapter aloud onto their computer and recorded it. So the students ended up with a navigable recorded version of the book that they could skip by chapter. And every teacher made 
We asked them to make a summary of the chapter in bullet points and each bullet point supported by a quote. This happened. Here's a quote. And so I could teach these little girls who were still learning to read how to write a structured essay because they had access to the content of the book. And I could teach them the writing skills, the foundational writing skills that they needed. And both those students went on to complete all schooling they did all the way up to the end of year 11. So I, I would count them as a success. And we then scaled that out. So we started to think about ebooks as, you know, an important consideration when we were choosing books for the curriculum. And accessibility came, started to be, we didn't call it that then. I didn't know what I was doing was called inclusive education. <laughs> but, you know, inclusive education isn't an invented thing. It's an organized way of thinking about good practice and accessibility and high quality instruction that supports everybody. It's a tide that lifts all the boats. It's not special ed for the few. So all of that stuff that I did for those two girls, trying to get them able to write text essays by year 10, that helped all the kids in my class. I taught really clearly and explicitly. You know, I had a bank of quotes and summary points of the book ready to go to help anyone who wanted to use them. So it it was really informative. It it shaped my teaching from quite early on. And, and when did you decide to move into research? And was as and was that like was that your ground zero basically? No, it wasn't. That was I taught for a number of years beyond that. I had about five years later, I had my first child and took family leave from that from that job. And then a couple of years later, I had my second. And I realized that I wasn't going to be able to return to full-time teaching for a while, that I didn't want to put both babies in full-time care and I had the luxury not to have to. And I had been running reading intervention. I'd been running cross-curriculum support programs. You know, I'd been doing this stuff for a while now. I've been assisting teachers in accessibility, you know, all of that stuff. So I thought, well, you could, you can't be a part-time English teacher. You can't really only be there for half the week, but you could do that role part-time. And so I was experienced, but I didn't have any kind of credential. I didn't have any qualification. So I undertook a master's in inclusive education, which ironically is the course I now teach. And I was mindful of the kids that we'd never really been able to serve very well. So we'd done lots of really good work for the kids who couldn't read and kids with accessibility, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd done a lot of work around accessibility. We'd changed the model of paraprofessional support and co-teaching. We, you know, people went into the classroom and supported teachers instead of pulling kids out. And, you know, we'd done a lot of that good stuff, but I wasn't qualified and I applied for a job and didn't get the job or I didn't, I don't even think I got an interview. And I was like, really? But I'm fabulous. How could you not want me? <laughs> you should Clearly. see what I can do. <laughs> So I, I enrolled in this master's and and by the end of it, I was still really, I was actually getting quite cross. There were kids that I'd never been able to help. The kids on the spectrum and the kids who live with trauma were the kids that really didn't get great quality support from us, not for lack of trying, but we just didn't really know how. I didn't have language back then, like executive function and executive planning. I didn't know how to, I didn't know what was hard for those kids and I didn't know how to help. And High schools are quite unique environments. They're distinct from primary schools. The kinds of things teachers can do in primary schools don't work when children move from classroom to classroom every 40 minutes and a new staff member and, um, you know, just that developmentally they're at a very different stage. That Not everything directly applies. So I ended up doing a PhD because I felt that I didn't have the answers that I wanted to be able to take back to schools and say, here, do this. And I thought that I would get that out of my PhD back back then. 
I now know that answers are never as simple. Hmm. <laughs> so you now teach um, classes for a master's in inclusive education? That's correct. And the your your students, I think you just said it, your students are sometimes in those special schools, right? That's Yes, that's correct. Okay. And so do you ever get students who are rethinking their their job choice? Yes, I do, often. And one of the great things is because they say, I, I can't, a lot of them have only ever worked in those environments. And one of them said to me, I know a lot of stuff. I know how to work with kids with really unpredictable behaviors when they've experienced trauma. I know how to work with kids who don't speak and use alternative and augmentative communication. You know, I don't turn a hair if there's kids in my class in nappies or catheters. <laughs> and she said, but I have no idea how to teach at grade level. None of our kids access the curriculum at grade level. And it's one of, you know, sometimes your students say things that ring in your ears for years and years, and that's one of them. And so that's kind of how I begin my classes. We, we've all got different forms of expertise here, you know, and I acknowledge what people know and can do and what they can't. And I talk about the importance of being both proud of what you can do and humble about what you can't and acknowledge it um, because it's frightening for people to say, I have no idea how to do that. People feel as if it's a kind of reflection on them personally, and it's not. It's a function of the system that we work in that's, that's a dual-track system that, don't, that has low expectations of kids with disabilities, that as if accessing grade-level curriculum isn't possible for them, when, of course, we know it is. So I, I do a lot of careful work around challenging that belief that some kids can't or shouldn't, the idea that, you know, a life skills curriculum is really appropriate for some kids. You know, there's a, there's a lot of challenging of that that I have to do without telling people that what they're, that, you know, that, that somehow that makes them a bad teacher if that's what they've always done. Because that's the anxiety that they bring is if, if what I've been doing is less than optimal, what does that mean for all of the work that I've done for so long and that I felt so strongly about? That is a very hard conversation to have with people. And so, I, I try to proceed at all times by acknowledging the good place that we come from, that we get up in the morning wanting to do the best and that when we know better, that we do better and that that's okay. And I try to make sure that that's a culture in the class of acknowledging what we do and don't know how to do and then sharing. So at, the, at a certain point in this master's, they do a professional placement and I try to, I've, I've, I've worked hard to develop relationships with schools that do this well and do different things well reading instruction, positive behavior support, you know, um, really good use of teacher aids rather than, you know, having a kind of pull out model or a kind of, you know, Velcro in the corner model or whatever the model they're using. <laughs> and so I try to have students exposed to good practice and they often come back and say, I, I couldn't have imagined what I saw until I saw it. Um, and so I, I think that clapping eyes on a different system is one of the most important things we can do. We don't do enough of it. Yeah, there's this video. I'm I'm sure when I reference it, you will it'll ring a bell. It is it was produced in Australia. It's a little girl with Down syndrome. I think it's called "What Is Inclusion?" Actually, it was I know produced the one. By, it came from Queensland. Yep. Yep, that's the one. Yep. So, you know, we so my organization is called the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, and we do a lot of training all over the all over the country. But we use that video a lot because there's something about it that con that the contrast between the different ways of explaining what inclusion is, so how 
in the start, it's just the little the little girl in the back. Sorry, my phone. I need to turn that off. There's the the girl with the teacher's aide in the back, and then there's the girl with the teacher aide in the middle of the class. But that's not really inclusion either, because and then there's the girl, and she's just it, included in the life of the class, and it's such a wonderful contrast. When we've played that video for people who just can't quite imagine it, it's like their eyes are opened. And it's it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's, I use that video a lot in my teaching as well. And it's the difference between placement and genuine inclusive practice, but it's painted in a very kind of um, easy to understand way and it's told in the voice of the little girl. I, I traveled to the United States to visit school, to look at school systems that had been running MTSS um, <laughs> well. And to good effect, you know, so I went to Kansas and Vermont. Um, and when I, it was, it was clapping eyes on how a system is done really differently and having conversations with people. And I felt like I'd traveled into the future or perhaps that I'd come from the past <laughs> because we don't have, we don't have the laws, the funding models and the culture of school transformation that's had to be built to go along with those. Um, so that's, that film that you talked about comes from the, I think it's from the Community Resource Unit in Queensland who do fabulous work. But the people who I end up talking to and showing that video to are people who've already come along to do a master's in inclusive education. They've already bought into that. And for some of those people, like I get teachers from special schools feeling a bit sad saying, I thought I was doing inclusion. I thought that by teaching kids with disabilities at a school that welcomed them, that what I was doing was called inclusion. And I say back to them, I think it's really important that we're precise with our language. I believe that your classroom is probably a very nurturing, caring place. I think there are probably great things about you as a teacher, but what that is is not inclusion. It's something different. And I think that videos like those are fabulous, but they are only viewed by people who are already ready to watch them. I, I wish that those kinds of videos were built into teacher preparation in all, in all universities, but I do not believe that they are. No, and not no, not even the, in the United States, because <laughs> we we still it's a while while it, it certainly sounds more the systems are more closely aligned. They're still separate a lot of the times, unless unless you're talking about a school district that's really made and that's been intentional about about integrating them. So oh, I had a thought and it's it's gone. Um, but I I I, I guess I guess I just wanted to read or to emphasize your point that the examples of authentic inclusion need to be part of teacher training for all teachers, not just those that are specifically being trained to work with with learners with disabilities. Yeah. I think that what people imagine inclusive education looks like and what it does look like are very different. I've had journalists say to me, if they've come and talked to me, something's happened in the media and they get a comment from me, they often say, can you recommend a, a school where we can go and see an inclusive classroom? And I say, what do you think you're going to see? Um, you know, it will look like any other classroom. You, unless there are children in there who, who look very visibly different, you're just going to see a classroom. You won't know that this one has language or attentional difficulties or that this one has, you know, really serious mental health difficulties or that this one's autistic. If they're being included and learning well, You'll only see something happening that's very separate and different for them if what's going on is potentially not inclusive at all. So that's never the answer they want to hear. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. 
Kate, because I recently went to a school district that is has been historically very inclusive. Their their placement data, you know, is is very high. Their mindset. I interviewed a number of their their like their top leaders, superintendents, directors, supervisors. Everyone had the mindset. Everyone was, you know, and so and, and as I walked around and and observed classrooms, I'm like, where are all the kids with disabilities? <laughs> <laughs> but you're right it's like it's and i and uh i mean i i think i knew that but i even i i remember asking them about this and they're like you're probably not noticing them because this is just how life is here and uh, and yeah i think you're right it's just you know when you when it's hard it's hard to put into words it's hard to it's hard to imagine it unless you experience it and you're like ah yes this but to just say, okay, all learners are together and they're being supported, it just, it's hard to imagine it. It is until you've seen it. That's, that's what we need to do much more of. Unfortunately, teachers don't love having their classrooms filmed and plastered over the internet. And not all the parents of the children in there are particularly up for that <laughs> level of, you know, publicity. So, and for kids who are visibly different, we're asking them to bear an extraordinary burden of scrutiny. And quite often the parents are exhausted from years of advocating to get their school to that point. You know, we do ask, we ask an unreasonable amount of the parents and the kids with disabilities to do the publicity for that. That's a good point. Well, we're running up, on, we're running up on our time, Kate. This is, I wish I could talk to you a little bit more, but just to wrap things up, is there anything else that we missed or that you wanted to make sure we talked about for our audience? I think we've really covered most of it. I, I think that the I think the one thing I wanted to finish with in the United States you have two separate ways that teachers can be credentialed. You have people prepared as special education teachers and people prepared as general education teachers, and we don't have that here because. Um, and what that means is though that we don't have the teachers in schools who've been given any any of the teachers in schools really exposed to sort of some of the inclusive practices, the evidence based practices that work for everybody or ways to layer additional supports on top that work, you know, to supplement and complement what goes on in classrooms rather than something different somewhere else. And so on the one hand, we don't have that structural separation in our workforce, but on the other hand, we lack some of the lead the leadership expertise that I, I saw in schools, teachers who acted as instructional coaches and teachers who were able to come into classrooms and give professional feedback. And I think that's the next frontier for both for both countries. I think my I think in Australia we need to figure out how to get more teachers trained in inclusive practice in schools and I think the from what I saw in schools the United States was trying to work out how to upskill their general ed teachers and see this as part of their core practice and I think that's the next frontier. Absolutely. Absolutely. We need we need teachers who go through education programs to be they don't need to be experts in 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 working with learners with disabilities but it needs to be an expectation, right? Yep. Yeah. Kate DeBruin, thank you so much for being on the Think Inclusive podcast. Very welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. Think Inclusive is written, edited, and sound designed by Tim Viegas and is a production of MCIE. Original music by Miles Kredich. If you enjoyed today's episode, here is one way that you can help our podcast grow become a patron and get access to ad-free episodes. 
behind-the-scenes posts, join our Together Letters group, and get a sneak preview of MCIE's new podcast series, Inclusion Stories. Special thanks to our patrons, Melissa H., Joyner E., Pamela P., Mark C., Kathy B., Kathleen T., Jarrett T., Gabby M., Aaron P., Paula W., and Carol Q. for their support of Think Inclusive. For more information about inclusive education or to learn how MCIE can partner with you in your school or district, visit mcie.org. Thanks for your time and attention. And remember, inclusion always works. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.